Even though there's been this claim on the part of the Census Bureau that those records are confidential and that are not shared with other federal agencies for enforcement efforts, nonetheless, those suspicions run really deep. Welcome to Who Belongs, our Haas Institute podcast. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts, and today we have another special episode produced in collaboration with the Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project here at the Haas Institute. Today's topic, the census, why it's been in the news, what's the controversy over, and what do we need to know? And to discuss this topic, we're privileged to have with us Professor Michael Omi from the Ethnic Studies Department who is an affiliated faculty member of our institute, former associate director of our institute, uh, the author of Racial Formation in the United States, and one of only a handful of experts on the U.S. Census. And to facilitate the discussion will be Stephen Menendian, who is the assistant director and director of research here at the Haas Institute and lead author on a series of briefs on residential racial segregation in the Bay Area. Welcome both, and Stephen, I'll hand it over to you now to launch into this discussion. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, great to have Michael here. Michael, how are you? Doing reasonably well for a late in the afternoon. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could find a time to meet and discuss this really important topic. Let's just begin. Michael, what are the stakes? I mean, there's a lot of stakes. Certainly, um, as you know, the census is not only providing a kind of form of, of uh, a collective portrait of who we are as a people, but obviously with the census itself too, um, it's uh, direct uh, political apportionment. You know, after the 1910 census, the House of Representatives was capped at 435, so now it becomes as the states are engaged in a zero-sum game. Uh, one state's gain is another state's loss in, in terms of the um, apportioning the seats for the House of Representatives. And also, of course, what's at stake is the billions of dollars in federal grants which are awarded to states, much, much of like I think almost half of the federal dollars that California receives in many respects comes through the kind of census numbers. So undercounts for states which have large populations which have traditionally um, been undercounted, uh, risk losing a whole host of, of resources as well as potentially uh, political appointments. So it's the, the stakes are political, but they're also financial. And one of the uh, challenges for us here in California is we tend to pay even more to the federal government than we get it in, in return. And, and apportionment obviously makes it a big deal in terms of that. Just to put some dollar figures to these amounts, um, one of the estimates, before the 2010 uh, census, the estimate was that over $500 billion a year are apportioned from the federal government to the states that have some uh, degree of dependence or conditionality on the census. The more recent estimate is $800 billion annually, which is re just shows you the magnitude and scale of, the, of uh, the significance of the census in terms of apportioning money and to, and to sort of um, apportion that among particular programs, almost 60% of Medicaid funding it depends on uh, census counts. Uh, large portions of, for example, the child in Childhood Insurance Program, CHIP, uh, federal funding for uh, adoption assistance, but also, uh, as you mentioned, infrastructure and roads and housing grants, um, and a huge chunk of Title I money, which is the 
1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act money that goes to school districts from the federal government. About 10% of, of local funding for schools comes from the ESEA. That is a portion based on census, mm -hmm. census counts. So we're talking literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Michael, what does that mean for marginalized communities who may be at risk of undercount? Well, what it means is obviously the census has always had a difficult problem addressing many of these marginalized communities about this about the numbers. Many of it has employed a kind of a public relations campaign that greet the beginning of the of the uh, census to get people to fill it out. Um, but there's also kind of a, a, another concern here, and I'm, I suppose we're going to go more deeply into the question around the proposed citizenship question, which Wilbur Ross and the Commerce Department would like to see on Census 2020, as to whether or not that will have a, a chilling effect on particularly those communities, immigrant communities, Many households are multi and have significant immigrant populations, but certainly also the undocumented population as well. And even though there's been this claim on the part of the Census Bureau that those records are confidential and that are not shared with other federal agencies for enforcement efforts, nonetheless, those suspicions run really deep. And in fact, the Census has, in fact, gone against that confidentiality before in the past when Ken Pruitt, who was the director of uh, Census 2000, came in, he had to issue an apology um, for, in fact, the census giving away um, information about Japanese Americans at the beginning of World War II, which was used, in fact, to figure out where Japanese Americans were for the evacuation and incarceration orders and, and the internment. And so now we have, in um, somewhat almost 60 years later, uh, Ken Pruitt has to apologize for that lapse, but nonetheless, the lapse occurred, and I'm sure it, it, it resonates with other people who feel themselves to be of a vulnerable population that maybe um, it's not so great to cooperate with the census. Well, well just starting at kind of the top of your, your remarks there, you know, part of the challenge with conducting the census is that only about two-thirds of Americans actually respond to the census form. But that two-thirds is really uneven. The harder-to-count communities tend to have disproportionate numbers, as you said, of undocumented people, of homeless people, and uh, they tend to be more marginalized communities. So what that means is that in the more affluent communities, you get a really precise, strong count. And then in the more marginalized communities that, who really need the resources of the federal government and the states, um, there's an undercount. And so we have to put really millions of tens of millions of dollars in outreach. Now, this decennial census, there's going to be less prep work spent, and I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But I did want to just make a couple of notes about the privacy side of this. I, part of what we're trying to do is emphasize how important the census is to our partners and the communities that we uh, work with. And um, just to underscore this, um, the federal government uh, places a $250,000 fine and up to five years in jail for anyone who violates census privacy law. And they, they will enforce that. Um, so they, they take the protection of privacy very seriously. Um, the, the census also, for researchers like us, um, 
the, it keeps the census records public up to, I think it's 70 or 80 years. So the most recent decennial census that's become fully public is the 1940 census. And it's really permitted some really interesting social science research we can talk a little, in a little bit. Um, but I just wanted to you know, assure people that it really is protected. There are social scientists who can get access to restricted census data, but you have to right. go through a, a real process to do that. Any thoughts? No, it's just that, yes, you know, the, those things are in place. It's been made pretty explicit, but nonetheless, there's this kind of knowing suspicion on the part, as well you might imagine, among those communities who are very marginalized as to whether or not those safeguards are sufficiently in place and whether or not, you know, this data is not going to be turned over to ICE or some other sort of enforcement agencies um, in order to locate and target certain population groups. So let's let's hone in on this this citizenship question then, which you've you've raised and has become really a, a focal point of the debate for the 2020 census. Um, I think we probably all agree that the insertion of the question was politically motivated. There's Absolutely, been, you agree with that. There's been for really the last since I'd say the late 1990s, if not the mid 2000s, this dual push. In the voting context, there's been the states who have been pushing these more restrictive voter IDs, and ostensibly to make sure there's no voter fraud. Um, and there's been a parallel push in terms of the census that we are now seeing with respect to this question. Just so folks know, the case that we're talking about is called Department of Commerce versus New York, which is now under review by the United States Supreme Court. Oral argument in the case is in April 23rd, and there are three questions that are actually uh, being heard by the court, one of which was just added recently. But the core issue is whether the insertion of this question by Secretary Ross as to whether you should identify your citizenship as part of the, is a legitimate and appropriate question, both whether it followed federal law, but more recently, California has said it actually violates the enumeration clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, which says that the, the Congress, uh, that the federal government has to get an actual count. And so the claim there is that by asking people whether they're citizens, as you said, they'll dissuade people from filling out the form out of fear and therefore fail to get an actual count. Um, and one of the issues is whether the courts should um, subpoena the secretary and, and, and interview him about what his motivations were. Um, what what are your thoughts on? Well, I mean, it was really clear. I mean, it was it was it was sort of a a very thin subterfuge to make some claims that um, the citizenship question would enhance aspects of uh, data collection to um, uh, enforce the Voting uh, Rights Act in some ways, where it was clear from earlier conversations that Secretary Ross had with Steve Bannon, among others, and Steve uh, and Miller, and and Miller uh, to in fact um, think about. Uh, how to shift these things around for um, political uh, reapportionment debates and how it would uh, impact those in a kind of negative way. Um, there's another aspect of this too, which is of course um, really, it, it reflects back on trying to get this kind of uh, national portrait of who we are. And in, in, in many respects, we've been moving and there's a lot of talk about m our motion towards a quote-unquote majority-minority society and um, what those numbers mean and how people perceive them and the kinds of ways that gets that gets read 
uh, in the popular media and social media. The fears uh, and anxiety. The, the fears and anxiety about uh, white minoritization. You know, I was just reading about uh, the uh, shooter in New Zealand, and in part of his document, he um, uh, talks about, particularly at the opening, about uh, our replacement, replacement theory. The yeah. replacement theory, which of course we've heard in the march of Charlottesville and other places about about diminishing um, uh, uh, rates of, of whites in the United States, and if if in fact non-whites. Um, are come to become the numerical majority or whether or not they become uh, dominant in other sectors of our society. I think there's a lot of anxiety with respect to that. What, what do you see as some of the demographic trends that will be revealed in the 2020 census? Ah, you know, I, I, that's a terrific question. I'm not sure I have a terrific answer with respect to that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll see this kind of uh, tremendous growth, particularly among uh, the Latinx and Asian population, um, a real diminishment of, of certainly in certain core states of the white population, but much of that might be uneven. You know, it's not clear, for example, that the way California goes or the way New York goes is the way the nation goes as a whole. We may be seeing, in fact, spatially how this gets played out in very different ways in the Midwest and in the South, for example. Um, and so there'll be the incredible source of, of regional variation with respect to uh, shifting racial and ethnic demographics as well. It's really interesting. I mean, studying racial segregation of late, you really see differential patterns of racial subgroup change. In California, uh, Asian Americans are potentially on track to become not just the plurality, but potentially even a majority in one of the next few decennial censuses. Mm -hmm. um, Michael, I wanted to shift, though, to talk about some of the politics of the census. Um, you know, there is an impulse, for example, if you look at France or Brazil, this kind of antipathy towards looking at racial demographics. Right. You know, and do you, do you see that as kind of an expression of colorblindness? And if so, what would those arguments mean for American society? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, in, in France, the French censuses do not code by race and ethnicity. But in fact, they offer us a, a very a good model of that, even if we didn't ask the questions, doesn't mean that there's not racial problems going on, right. which they are indeed in, in France. Um, but in the United States, uh, particularly in the post-civil rights era, there's been a concerted push um, um, for the government to uh, step away from sort of uh, color consciousness, if you will, the, in, which could be reflected in the kinds of categories and enumeration for the census. There's a kind of belief that um, the transition to truly a colorblind society means that um, we should get rid of that sort of racial kind of record keeping and data collection. And there's been attempts in the state of California in, in 2003 Ward Connolly, uh, an ex-UC regent, as well as the architect of Proposition 209, the anti-affirmative action measure. And, and anti-affirmative action measures in a number of states. In Michigan's uh, yeah, Proposal Pro 2. Um, proposed the Racial Privacy Initiative, which would uh, make the California Constitution um, not be able to count or classify by race. Um, for educational purposes, for uh, different sorts of tracking around hire, yeah, research and hiring practices. And it was reflective of that. I mean, Connerly himself believed that the creation of a colorblind society means we should step away from 
kind of racial classification. And in fact, if you read some of the voter pamphlets of the time, which he authored, as well as his own editorials on the subject, it made it seem as though he talks about how racial categories were used to buttress racially based slavery, exclusion laws, you know, anti-besidional laws. And what's a failure on that part is, of course, to see those categories being used in a pre-civil rights period, which were used to disenfranchise or, or oppress minority communities, as opposed to the way that data was used in a post-civil rights context in which folks were trying to think about the patterns of institutional forms of inequality or discrimination. Access to health care, incarceration rates. Uh, employment, whole, educational employment, attainment. Yeah. Residentially based segregation. That, that's the issue that actually terrifies me the most. It's, you know, so there's a federal analog to uh, to, to the uh, proposal that was put on the California ballot initiative, which failed, thank, thankfully, which was in 2010, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, who recently ran against Beto O'Rourke, um, had proposed that the census be two questions as opposed to the 10 questions that were on the 2010 census. And none of them would have c collected racial information or ethnic information, which means that for someone who wants to be able to map segregation and rely on the census or the, the American Community Survey, which is a, a regularly annual, annual survey subset of the census, you just couldn't do it. The only way you could get that data is if a private organization were, were to spend millions of dollars, perhaps tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in a limited number of metropolitan areas to generate that info, and it wouldn't be nearly as precise as the census. So I think what you're saying is, yes, race can be used for malicious and nefarious purposes, but it's also how we measure racial inequality. Absolutely. And you know, there's been other things. Uh, Marco Rubio and Mike Lee had a bill that was around, uh, that prohibited among some, uh, in, uh, around data collection or geospatial mapping around access to affordable housing and, and discriminatory trends. And what's interesting about something like that, it's almost, the analogy here is, towards, uh, is about climate change data. You know, it's almost like we can negate that our, we're, we're in the midst of, uh, of global climactic change. If by, we just don't measure it. If we just don't measure it, <laughs> if we get rid of the data. In the same token, it's almost as if we can paper over any sort of um, glaring kind of egregious forms of, of housing segregation or, or res uh, racially restrictive housing uh, zoning laws by, in fact, just don't have the data. So, so that really serves a, a colorblindness ideology, which when, when you think about it in those terms, is unmasked for what it is. It's about kind of perpetuating and, ex and being okay with racial inequality, as opposed to actually understanding what the patterns are and then figuring out what to do about it. Because if you don't know what the data, data says, you can't figure out what to do about it. I was just talking with our, with our equity metrics team earlier. Without, we rely heavily on census and ACS. Without that data, we wouldn't be able to look at relationships, as you were saying, between race and educational attainment, race and employment, race and health outcomes. You would rely on much spottier, much more inaccurate uh, secondary sources like Pew or, or major foundations who could do conduct one-off studies, as opposed to this really free data that we have at our, in our hands now. So. This really advances, those proposals advance a colorblind ideology. Yes, they do. And it's made more complex, by the way, because of the ways in which the census has been sort of primarily involved in, in helping us define 
what those racial groups were in the first place. So, you know, we have a scenario where through much of the 20th century and most of the 21st century, almost no two censuses are utilizing the same set of racial categories or ways of measuring that. So it's complicated by that too. Although I gotta say part of the challenge to these racial classifications is for people to say, oh, you know, it's so flexible, so socially constructed, we should just get rid of it, you know, and, and not being able to, to map that out. Can, can I ask you about that? So what are some of the proposed changes? You've spoken uh, quite a bit mm -hmm. about what you had hoped were gonna, was gonna happen in the 2020 census with respect to racial and ethnic categories and what what isn't going to happen and what you hope will happen going forward. Well, what's interesting is that in, in 2017, uh, the census folks released uh, the results of a, of a a set of studies they were conducting. It's interesting too, by the way, let me say parenthetically here, that the census does do a lot of social research. It, it looks at different kinds of formats for questions. It conducts individual and focus group interviews with people to try to align how people's understanding of their personal or group identities uh, 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 sort of parallels some of the construction of these categories that are placed upon the census. Um, what they released was something called this optimal elements of a, of a census kind of form, which I really thought was going to be our 2020 census. And the difference is, um, instead of asking two questions, we ask a question two about- Two ethnicity questions. questions. We yeah. ask a question about ethnicity, and that's one is whether or not someone is Hispanic, Latinx or not. Uh, and the other is the uh, race-based question, that that was gonna be collapsed so that we would have one question. And the quote-unquote Latino, Hispanic, Latinx category would be uh, part of, part of a, a race question. The other thing which it established was in fact uh, open-ended uh, boxes to write in. There were check-offs, but also open-ended uh, boxes so that for the first time, whites could specify what kind of white they were, or blacks, for example. African-Americans could push down that they were uh, Somali or they were Jamaican or whatever into the box. And we didn't have that information or that wasn't an available option in the past. And probably one of the most in interesting one was finally the addition of a new category, the Middle Eastern and North African category, which was in fact, uh, up until this time, people who are Egyptian, Iranian and so forth are, are seen as white and it would allow them a separate, what is called the MENA category for that. So I thought that's what was gonna happen, pretty much so. But that's gotten derailed in this past, uh, over the course of the past year. And so, pretty sure what's gonna happen for 2020, um, I've seen some of the printed forms ready to go on this. It looks like we're back to the two question ethnicity race format, asking about uh, Latinx identity first and then the race question, but it will allow uh, whites and, and blacks as well as other groups to fill in on a blank and specify who they are. But the other thing is that the Middle Eastern and North African category has disappeared. So that will not appear on Census 2020. Interesting. I, I, I know from doing segregation research that it can become very difficult to talk about like non-Hispanic white, Hispanic white as a category, um, you know, and then as an ethnic category, and then you have to think about, and, and both of these, of course, are socially constructed. Right. So, you know, w w who's to say that the, the census, as you say, is sort of 
as you say, sort of contributes in the social construction, at least historically, of these racial and ethnic categories. Well, it's important because in many ways the site is, uh, the uh, census rather, is a kind of a premier site of political contestation over what those categories, what racial categories are, and are often the effects of, of demands being made from below for recognition or acknowledgement, and the census responding to that in some fashion. It's kind of always this kind of, throughout the decades, an interesting kind of momentum. I mean, in 1930, we had a Mexican category, racial category, which disappeared because of the objection of Mexican-Americans and also by the Mexican government intervening to not make Mexicans a racial category. And, and talk about some of the other interesting, like, historical, like, for example, the census having Octoroon or these different... Right, right. That's the other thing is that the um, acknowledgement of a, quote-unquote, uh, a mixed-race or multiracial identity, since for most of the census's history, it always assumed everybody has a monoracial identity. Uh, earlier on, however, in the 1890 census, for example, they do list mulatto, uh, quadroon, and octoroon, in addition to, in fact, white, black, Japanese, Chinese, and Indian. Um, but in fact, there's always it been impressed upon both census takers and even in a period of self-report that you can only check one box. So even as late as 1960, census takers were told uh, of a person of, of white and non-white heritage, you're supposed to mark off that they're non-white. Yeah. So there's always this kind of way in which uh, a kind of one-drop rule of, of, of race was kind of deployed with respect to that. So what happened in anticipation of Census 2000 was that, particularly in the 80s, but deepening in the 90s, there were a number of organizations that wanted to add a multiracial, mixed-race um, checkoff to the census. And uh, many of this came from, from uh, movements in local school districts in which parents who of quote-unquote mixed-race children wanted to be able for their children to be able to, to um, check off you know, uh, such a category. Uh, what's ironic, somewhat ironic about it, is that when those proposals originally were heard uh, with respect to the Office of Management Budget and the Commerce Department, that a number of, of, of the traditional civil rights organizations lined up against right. a separate multiracial yeah. category for fears of a diminishment with in their Duluth. numbers, yeah. as well as the kind of complications that would pose for civil rights enforcement and compliance if, in fact, how you determine discrimination suits on the right. basis of a multiracial category. So what was odd about this, um, to sum up a, a longer story, is finally the Office of Management and Budget made a call and um, didn't listen to either of those groups. It didn't listen to the folks who wanted a multiracial category, and it certainly um, didn't listen to the um, large uh, traditional civil rights lobby as well. It said, we're gonna allow people to do multiple checkoffs, yeah. so now you can mark two or more. And uh, that leads to complications somewhat in uh, looking up the numbers. If one is black or and Korean, uh, they're assigned as part of the black population and as part of the Korean population of the United States. So you have to use a statistical technique to try and sort out the, the subcategories. Absolutely. So the census reports often say things like people uh, checking one off, one category, or uh, in combination with others. Well, multiracial is one of the fastest growing groups in America. And the, yes. the number of children born today who have 
multiracial grandparents. One, you know, is is dramatically growing, could be enormous within in coming decades. But this isn't a new phenomenon. And as you were just talking about with the octoroon and quadroon and so on, we've always had multiracial. We just found ways of socially repackaging that in, right, in different, right. in different or ways. Or not acknowledging not, it, as the case may be. You know, that, I mean, to think about that, as I said, as late as 1960s still, census takers were given specific instructions on how to code people racially. As we as we turn to the home stretch here, I wanted to just reemphasize a couple of, I, I think, key points. One is that the Constitution in Article 1, Section 2 requires an actual enumeration, <laughs> which means that, you know, that we need to know, it's always counted everyone, including in se- the 1790, which was the first decennial census, um, counted four million people, mm-hmm. which included Slaves, right, and and slaves, slaves. Well, but on the basis of the um, 1787 um, three fifths compromise, right. which was the compromise which was worked out that in fact slaves would count as three fifths of a person, and that was done um, in order to appease folks in the South, in, in, uh, with respect to a state's apportionment to the House of Representatives, as well as for taxation purposes as well. Which, I mean, today suggests that we, we need to uncount people who are doc- undocumented, because they there was a recently a symbolic vote in the Congress about whether people who are undocumented should be able to vote. Now, obviously, undocumented people can't vote in federal elections, but I don't know what you think about, about it, Michael, but in my opinion, if you're undocumented and you have your you have a child in a school system, you should have every right to vote on the school board, mm-hmm. which selects the curriculum, the pedagogy, you know, shapes the educational experience, votes on budgets. Um, to me, that's just common sense, and that's why Californian senators voted against that. Mm-hmm. But there's a parallel, which is you know, so the way that our bicameral legislature works is that states are represented by two senators. But the, the, the House of Representatives is representative of the people, including people who can't vote, which means minors or undocumented people. And that actually, we don't talk about it, but as you, you did mention, the, the cap in the House of Representatives, it also has, plays a role in the Electoral College mm-hmm. because the Electoral College is 535. It's the House of Representatives plus the Senate. So there are five, the people who get to vote, actually vote, for president, not just the symbolic popular vote, are dependent upon representation. No, absolutely, absolutely, and that 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 plays into this whole debate about, um, you know, how in fact uh, it becomes such a zero sum game for the states, and that's why you know undercounts in certain key states where there's enormous or very large immigrant populations, it it really it tips the balance. It would tip the balance enormously. And the stakes couldn't be higher. You know, there, as I said earlier, hundreds of billions of dollars of, of federal funding. Brookings in 2010 counted over 250 federal programs that, whose funding depends on uh, on census counts. Um, Michael, this has been a really fascinating conversation. As we wrap up, are there any other things, any other points you'd like to make or concerns? Well, you or may issues? know more about this too, because this could be our first census, which is actually done online, <laughs> which raises a yeah. whole host of other questions about accessibility for a group of for there, there have been some discussions about whether some portion or part of the census should be conducted online I mean much like uh, the debate over the ballot you know the, the difference between the census and say and uh, the ballot is that ballots are actually determined by states so there's a huge patchwork among the states despite 
laws like the Help America Vote Act, which creates more federal funding. Um, there are some parameters, but the census is federally administered by federal agency. Um, so I, I don't know how that's going to resolve and what that's going to play out. Uh, but certainly people have uh, cause for concern, especially when we've seen how foreign entities have played a role in, in our elections. I, I, and I think with this, too, it's, it's going to be very interesting about not only uh, getting a quote-unquote accurate count, but the census itself is far behind in where it should be in prep for 2020. And if, in fact, it, it becomes clear that uh, it's, it's a very unsuccessful census count and drive. I think there's going to be a lot of, once again, political cries to uh, reshape how we do this. You know, folks who just want uh, the, the, the sheer numbers, you know, what, what it uh, just on the back of a postcard, just yeah. check off and, and we'll see how many people there are in the United States without uh, looking at uh, some very substantive kinds of categories we'd like to see uh, to give us a much more fuller and robust kind of demographic portrait of who we are as a people. I, I'm one of those people who lamented the elimination of the long form, you know, the 2010 census, but I'm really happy that the ACS has picked that up, which for those of you who don't know, the long form picked up socioeconomic information so you wouldn't have data on economic inequality with respect to race. So you could see what proportion of, say, African-Americans are upper income or not. And you could look at that at a fairly granular level. And not just, you know, without the census, we would be, states and, and private organizations would be doing this, but they wouldn't have the level of detail. You know, you could look at a metro area, but you wouldn't necessarily have it at the level of the census tract or even the census block group. What I want to close with, though, Michael, is just emphasizing the equity elements of this, this conversation. You know, the census seems like a really dry, technical, federal program, but really it's the fundamental instrument by which we measure equity. And without a census, we wouldn't be able to know inequality on the basis of race or age and look at these different intersections. We would have some statistics, like the Bureau of Labor Statistics collects unemployment by race, and we can look at that, but we wouldn't have nearly the degree of information we have now and I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we get a good count, especially of our marginalized populations, for political power in the Electoral College, in the Congress, but also for all these federal programs that really serve the most needy populations. Agreed. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Omi, professor in the Ethnic Studies Department here at UC Berkeley. Professor Omi is also an affiliated faculty member of our institute and the author of Racial Formation in the United States. I'd also like to thank our guest host today, Stephen Menendian, who is our assistant director and director of research here at the Haas Institute. Thank you for listening.